0: Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 58. And while you're turning to Isaiah 58 in the precious word of God, I hope that you heard Brady's exhortation for us to draw nearer to the Lord and the song that we sang and how appropriate it is given how Isaiah 58 ends. The song, Nearer My God to Thee, is a story of Jacob's life and how he had to use stones for a pillow one night when he was running away from Esau, who had sworn to kill him. And the Lord appeared to him that night in a dream, and he saw a ladder raised up to heaven, and angels ascending and descending on that ladder, and the Lord said that he would be with him. And Jacob asked the Lord to be with him, and the Lord was with him. And he called that place Bethel. It's too bad that the name of the melody that we sang that to was called Bethany. But nonetheless, he named that place Bethel, Beth El, house of Elohim or house of God. And it was a wonderful place. And the only gift he had to offer there was a little bit of oil he had with him. And he poured that out upon those stones and glorified God and God blessed him mightily. When he came back that way 20 years later, He had 12 sons, 4 wives, and God had blessed him so greatly that they couldn't travel together in one company. He was so rich. The Lord had taken care of him. Esau met him and hugged him on his neck. And the Lord took care of Jacob. And Isaiah 58 will end, that if we delight ourselves in the Lord properly, he will feed us with the heritage of Jacob. He'll give us the blessings of Jacob. And we want the blessings of Jacob today Isaiah chapter 58 Isaiah 58 I know some of you like this particular chapter of Isaiah very much for the simplicity of it the brevity of it and how the conditions are simple but the promised blessings are significant and we want to we want to embrace that today God rejected formal worship without practical godliness is what this chapter is going to teach us. This is the theme of this chapter in one sentence. God rejected formal worship without practical godliness, but he would bless the man doing both. And the priority should be on the practical godliness. In this case, an emphasis on charity over formal, outward, external, ritualistic worship. I sent you an outline yesterday in an email that I hope might have been helpful to you. If you look at verses 1 and 2, Isaiah is called by God to expose the formality of the Jews' religion. In verses 3 through 5, Israel's ritual ordinances did not please God, no matter the details that they were taking care of in those ritualistic ordinances. Verses 6 and 7, God required godly living for true religion. And he states it very clearly. Verses 8 through 12 are five verses of blessings. God would mightily bless true worshipers in verses 8 through 12. And then there is an example or a recapitulation in verses 13 and 14, summing up the chapter with an example of godly worship for great blessings and and how to do it. This is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible in this respect with the simplest conditions for the greatest blessings. Because what is asked here is not our firstborn. What is asked here is our charitable relationships with others. And we should remember that. James chapter 1 and verse 27 tells us, pure religion, pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, that we visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and that we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. There isn't any reference there to dotting our I's nor crossing our T's in perfect doctrine. Pure religion is more than perfect doctrine. Pure religion is more than sober, reverent assemblies. Pure religion is how we treat others because as I have tried to explain for many years and recently in an update, the change in nature required to humbly serve others is one of the greatest evidences of God's grace in a person's life. Lord, help us to have that. This is one of the great chapters of the Bible in that respect. Now, the previous chapters reintroduced God's judgment on Israel for their lazy pastors, their idolatry, and their iniquity. I hope you remember that from chapters 56 and 57. This chapter... Dealing with hypocrisy is more closely related to the next chapter than what's gone before. Because the next chapter is going to say, is the Lord's ear stopped up and is his arm shortened that it cannot save? No. The answer is, your sins have separated you from God, so he will not hear. And so if we can grab today the error of carnal Christianity... If we can grab today the vanity of ordinances, the vanity of doctrine, the vanity of doing things according to the due order in detail, but without internal, practical, and relational godliness, God rejects it. And we don't want God to reject us. As our brother just prayed, the question that we want to be asking and answering today Is God pleased with our lives? With our lives. Not with our worship. We'll get to that later. But with our lives. May the Lord be pleased with our lives. We live in the perilous times of the last days. And I had you read that 21 verse section in preparation for today's preaching. We live in a time where there is a compromise of churches and Christians... With carnality and worldliness, they have an effeminate form of religion. They have a form of godliness, but they deny changed lives. They're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. We must stand against that, starting in our own hearts, then in our own lives, in our marriages, in our families, and in this church. Lord, help us. God does not accept perfect worship when it's done with unrighteous living and we want the righteous living first and then we'll worry about perfect worship. The Lord has blessed us in both of these regards and so let us listen today carefully to what the Lord has for us from Isaiah chapter 58. The first lesson in verses one and two is that God called Isaiah to expose formality of religion. And so I read to you the first two verses of Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Now, in verse 1, a minister, Isaiah in this particular case, is commanded and charged by God to blast away against the Lord's people, to blast away against the church members, because their religion was worship, and it was worship in pretense. They had a certain measure of comfort and tradition in getting together for their assemblies and practicing their religion, but their heart wasn't really in it because their heart wasn't righteous and holy in their dealings with everyone else. And so they would go through the motions of coming together. They would ask to hear the word of God preached to them. And they would sit there and give the impression of being delighted to be in the house of the Lord. But it wasn't true. Because all the time they were thinking about, how can I make more bucks? I need to make more bucks. The stigma on the Jews about their love of money is scriptural, honest, and faithful. And they're still known for that today. The Bible tells us in both Testaments that their table, their banking tables, are the snare Of the Jewish people. And here, as we're going to read, they kept the oppressive burdens on their servants, slaves, and employees and pushed them and pressed them because they were more interested in making a buck than in pleasing God. We want to hate that. I want all of our young men and women in the proper place and in the proper way to be ambitious, to be diligent but we want godliness as our highest priority. Lord, help us to that end. These people gave the impression of liking to go to church and doing religious things on a religious day, but they didn't have personal godliness in their lives, and they were not committed to their relationships. God wants good relationships. How many times do I need to say this? I hope that we all know it. When John the Baptist was sent to prepare the church for the arrival of their Messiah, he was sent to turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What's a people prepared for the Lord? That have memorized the systematic theology? No. A people prepared for the Lord have their relationships right. And if you don't have servants, and if you don't have slaves... And if you don't have employees and you're not really the owner of a business or a master of employees, then think about the relationships you do have today, because I'm not going to let you off the hook because it says, spare not. So I'm not going to spare you by letting you try to escape. Do you have a relationship with your parents, with your siblings, with church members, with neighbors? with colleagues, with peers at school the way that you should, with your boss, and then with employees if you're a master. If you're an employee, do you have a great relationship with your colleagues and those you work with? Let's measure ourselves the way God measures us, by our relationships. Then we will have the blessings that are described here, and they are wonderful. This is a short... Job description for a pastor in the first verse. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. When we come together for preaching, it is to engage in war. I am your enemy, though your loving friend And your caring shepherd when we come together. But we are at war because I need to war against the thoughts of your mind and to bring them into captivity and make them subject to the thoughts of my captain. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that very plainly in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6, where it says that it's a warfare. And the weapons of our warfare, ministerial warfare, are not carnal weapons, but they're bringing your thoughts into captivity to the spiritual thoughts of Jesus Christ. Fools say about preaching, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. I say, who wants flies in a church anyway? Fools say... I just love to hear so-and-so preach. He is such a sweet and kind man. I say, where in the word of God is such an effeminate, worthless description of a preacher? Fools say, fire and brimstone and loud pulpit pounding ended with the dinosaurs. I say, the dinosaurs are still here because we're not going to change the preaching of God's word. If anyone thinks today does not call for Isaiah's methods, they are blind and deaf because if there was ever a generation that calls for Isaiah's methods, right here, it's today. It's today. People have a form of godliness according to the prophecy of 2 Timothy chapter 3, but they deny the power of the the, the grace of God in their lives. They deny the power of changed lives. And so we want to preach this way. Cry aloud. There's no time, my brethren, for calm, sweet, polished, genteel discussions and storytelling. I thank God he made me incapable of most of those things. Even if I were to try, I'm not a good storyteller. Today, they want a, they want a, seeker-sensitive, a seeker-sensitive church. Once a man sitting on a stool that is calm and cool in his golf shirt and flip-flops. Not here, not on my watch, not with my captain. We're gonna have Isaiah 58 in verse 1. It's summarized in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Preach the word, be instant, which means to be insistent, pressing and urgent in season, whether the people want to hear it or out of season. They don't want to hear it. You don't change the method. Seeker-sensitive churches work to keep the pastor quiet and the rock and roll praise band very loud. When they see the words cry aloud, they understand that to mean play aloud. But don't preach that way. We're gonna preach that way and keep our music in its proper place. Spare not. There's no time to tiptoe around to avoid offending the sensitive or the weak, we must preach the word of God one second after you meet the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, you'll wish I had preached longer, louder, and more intensely. Any reading of the word of God should show you that, of what it's going to be like when he appears. The philosophy of seeker-sensitive churches is to spare everything but public serial killers. Everyone else Gets to a free ride in seeker sensitive churches today. The whole practice of those churches is that everything is a matter of liberty. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet. There's no time for speech and oratorical entertainment. It's just a blast away with what God said. And what God said is, He doesn't care that you attend church services. What He said was, He doesn't care if you fast. He doesn't care even if you use sackcloth and ashes. If you're not going to maintain proper, righteous, loving, charitable, peaceful, godly, content relationships with others. And that's what's in front of us in these verses. Lord, help us to see it. What were Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus, and Paul like? They lifted up their voices and preached. Jesus condemned the religious rulers of his day. Jesus blasted against the religious compromise of his time. What is right content? The right content is like Matthew chapter 3 through 7. Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, which is a string of corrections of public worship of the Jews. John starts out by saying, What are you doing here at my baptism? You generation of vipers. Don't you know that this nation's going to be burned up? And the fan is already in God's hand and He's fanning those flames. That's the preaching of Isaiah 58 in verse 1. It's one thing to blast the world's sins. What good does it do if we stand in this pulpit and just blast the sins of the world outside us? Very little profit. In fact, it turns toward our pride, it, it provokes pride in us. What we want to do is find out from God's word what we ourselves are doing wrong. And this chapter is a great one for that. Christians today don't want real preachers. They want entertainers and fables. And there's so many verses that we could turn to on that subject, but we must move on. The second verse identifies these pretenders as looking like they loved God. Looking like they appreciated doctrine looking like they wanted to worship him according to the due order because they asked for the ordinances of justice. But they did not. They were false pretenders. They were hypocrites. They gave lip service to God. And Isaiah has already prophesied that in Isaiah 29, and Jesus picked it up in Matthew chapter 15, where he said, their fear toward me is taught by the precepts of men. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far removed from me. So they look like a church delighting in the Lord and a church that delighted in doing righteousness, but they didn't. Because they didn't do it when they left those assemblies. It was to have an iron fist on their employees to make another buck at the expense of someone else. They seek me daily. This is all in pretense. God had already shown Isaiah their national hypocrisy. And if you read Isaiah 1 last evening, and those preparatory chapters are not selected willy-nilly for you. They're selected to help you understand the chapter before you. And if you read Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord said, I'm sick of your burnt offerings. I don't want any more sacrifices. In Psalm 50, he says, and if you read Psalm 50, that was also suggested as extra material. In Psalm 50, I already own the cattle in a thousand hills. What do you think you're going to give me? And so the error here, the error that Isaiah was to preach loudly and severely against was what we call carnal Christianity. It's having a form of godliness. That's the third time I said it. I know when I don't know is when we have a trouble, when we have trouble. but I know right now. Now the fourth time, when they have a form of godliness, but they deny changed lives, and we want changed lives and not just a form of godliness. So verse two is describing their appearance. They had a form of godliness. Oh yes, we want to go to church. We want to hear the ordinances of justice. And we want to do righteousness. We want to be a good people. We want to be good Christians. But it was all in a pretense because the Lord is going to expose that now. Verses 3 through 5. Israel's ritual ordinances did not please God. And so I read to you verses 3 through 5 where God knows the question they have as to why he hasn't blessed them for their fasting. And then he points out, that their fasting is not the kind of fasting he wants. Verse 3 of Isaiah 58. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate... And to smite with the fist of wickedness, ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, and an acceptable day to the Lord? And so Isaiah the prophet, blasting away at them, points out that while they're complaining that God isn't seeing them, acknowledging them, or blessing them, even though they're fasting, on the behalf of God, he shows them that it's not the kind of fast that he wanted, that it's just an external form of religion. They're going through the motions of a fast. In verse 3, why aren't we getting any results? His answer, in the day of your fast, you're still worried about pleasure and exacting all your labors from your employees. All you're thinking about is still having fun while you go without food for a few hours, which anyone can do and proves nothing, and you're looking to have the fun that you want and you're not going to lose a buck by it. You're going to exact all your labors. You're going to press men for what you want to make from them. This is exactly being lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. How can a New Testament verse line up so carefully with this one? Because there's one author, and it's the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's unacceptable to God. Because if you're going to fast, if you're going to afflict your soul, I say that mockingly, as it is here, if you're going to afflict your soul by skipping a few meals, then afflict your soul by not looking to do your pleasure while you're in that fast. And if you're truly sincere, then show some mercy toward those under you. Lose a few bucks instead of just a few calories. Verse 4, behold. Notice the terminology. The answer in verse 3, found in the last third of the verse, is prefaced by behold. It's the Lord's answer. This is clear and obvious, and you should look at it. And then verse four, behold, ye fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. I will not hear you. I will not see your fasting because while you're fasting, you're still fighting. You're still debating and you're still smiting with the fist of wickedness. You're still beating others down in order to help you get ahead. Verse five. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? Do I really care that you go without a few meals to afflict your soul, meaning their bodies? Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, did not refer to the spirit of Jesus Christ, but to his body. Thou shalt beat him and shalt deliver his soul from death, is his life in Proverbs chapter 23. Is it such a fast? Is this really what I want? for you to go without a few meals, for you to bow your head down like a bulrush, for you to use a little bit of sackcloth and ashes, do you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Because I don't. God through Isaiah is saying, I don't. I don't really care about the sackcloth and ashes. I don't care that you walk around with your head hung low because you're still looking to how you can have fun and how you can make a buck and how you can abuse other people for your advantage. And so the second lesson. And so it's the Lord is looking at our relationships. Let me quote James 127 again. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Boy, when the Bible says something like that, we want to read what comes next because it's pure religion and being undefiled before God. If God calls it pure religion, then it comes right up into his presence. Yep, that's how you get your voice to be heard on high. This way. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. We've got to hate the world and not let it touch us. And we need to take care of those that need taking care of. That's simple. Let's go to the next lesson. Verses 6 and 7. God required godly living for true religion. Verses 6 and 7. Here's his definition of a fast. This is God's definition of a fast. It involves godly living more than the details of fasting. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Beautiful! The word of God is simple. Oh, I think I said that earlier. This is one of the great chapters of the Bible because of the simple conditions for the significant blessings. Look at the simple description of a fast to God. Notice, There's no sackcloth, there's no ashes, and there's no denying a meal. He doesn't care about that part of it. Because anyone can do that. The monks of the Catholic Church have proven it for millennia now. The Catholics do their version of fasting for Lent. It means nothing to the Lord. What means something to Him is right here. If anyone is oppressed... And being burdened, and they're being hurt, and there's a yoke on them that is greater than they should bear. Do what you can to lift that. Make life better for those around you. What can you do to make life better for those around you? And you say to me, well, I don't own a business. Well, then think about your family. How many of you wives oppress your husbands? Why don't you stop? How many of you husbands oppress your wives? Why don't you stop? How many of you fathers discourage and provoke to anger your children? Why don't you stop? And it just extends right on out until you should look at all the faces that I'm looking at today in this nearly full assembly in our church and asking you, do you care about everyone else in here? You know, in a recent update, I threw out the craziest idea. The craziest idea for your flesh to read and see if there was a spiritual part of you that would understand. How many of you had thought about paying your free checks, free money from the government forward? Why do you think I put that in an update? I put it in an update because I knew what Isaiah 58 had to say to us. How can we make the lives of those around us better? And I hear the Pharisees. I know Pharisees. I've heard them all my life, but I don't know of anyone in real need in our church. So what? Why don't you lift the burden they have by giving them a little bit of extra? You like the extra. Why do you want to keep it? It's because you are obsessed with the extra. Why don't you want to share some of it? And so we have verses 6 and 7. Let's throw some bread around. And I mean bread in the American slang way, by meaning money. Let's throw some bread around and that we bring the poor to our houses after we're through self-isolating and quarantining ourselves. And if we see somebody that doesn't have any clothes, why don't you give them a gift certificate to the men's warehouse or something like that? And we've got to include our own family. We first of all need to look at our own flesh as this seventh verse ends and make sure that we're being fair and generous with them. This is not Jonathan Crosby's idea on what makes a church great. This is God's doctrine on what pleases him. This is how we get prayers to heaven, and this is how we get the blessings that are in verses 8 through 12, which we now want to look at. I hope that you can see in verses 6 and 7, anyone that you know that you can lift a burden, that you could make their life easier, that you could help, that you could relieve that are in some sort of affliction, help them, bless them, take care of them. I, it's true. We live in America. There's no one truly poor in our church. There's no one truly afflicted. Eh, there's some affliction, but it's not what you would ordinarily call affliction, so we've got to look for it. And then we've got to be generous in our thought process before generosity in our giving. And that is, how strict am I going to be on what kind of a person deserves a little boost? Because, let me say it again, you love the boost. That's why you want to keep the checks for yourself. Why don't you want to share them? Just asking. I'm not the last person that's going to ask you. Someday when the Lord Jesus Christ is dividing up the sheep and the goats, you'll probably hear about these checks. What's your attitude about it? And so what we find is that our building, our assemblies, our doctrine, our order, our reverence, our godly fear, the way that we run services, our prayers before services, how serious we are, how different we are, doesn't matter to God. He wants to know about our relationships with others. So let's come to the blessings. Let's get to the good part. It's all good. It's all good, but uh, the blessings here are significant. Verses 8 through 12. Then, then, brethren, then. This is describing the result of having the worship of God that's in verses 6 and 7. And the worship of God in verses 6 and 7 isn't in an assembly. It isn't reading your Bible. It isn't memorizing scripture. It's thinking about others And how can I make their life easier? Yes, the Jews were notorious with a fist of wickedness, beating and oppressing the poor and taking advantage of them. But since we don't have a great deal of that in our congregation, let's not escape the force of the words and the intent for us by God that we look around and see who we can relieve that is in less dire circumstances than in this generation. Here we go. Then, I just want you to know that what's coming is a list of the rewards for taking care of others. Then, shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, the glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Amen and amen. What a list of blessings covering every part of your life. These Jews, most likely in Babylon, from the prophet's perspective, because I want to point out to you that there are only two ordinances mentioned in Isaiah 58 fasting and the Sabbath, because there wasn't a temple and there wasn't ordinary temple worship. But even in Babylon, they could fast, and even in Babylon, they could keep the Sabbath. Just note that. So they're in trouble, and they're fasting the way that they viewed fasting, and God wasn't acknowledging them or hearing them, and he wasn't blessing them. And so the Lord says, if you'll fast the right way, and that is to show it in changed relationships, and some generosity, and some mercy toward others, here's what I'll do for you. And it's tremendous. It's tremendous. They would be back home, because they would raise up the waste places of generations. They'd be the restorer of the paths to dwell in, because the paths are all overgrown back in Judah. They would be the repairer of the breach. The nation had been breached by Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans. And so it it extends all the way to your descendants. I thank God for my righteous father. I thank God for my merciful, tender father who regards other people. And I thank God for him because I'm his son and I get to be, by the grace of God in this church, a restorer of paths to dwell in and the repairer of the breach by bringing back New Testament apostolic religion in this city, and around the world, by our website. It's a tremendous blessing. I, am not, I have no time to go through all the details of these blessings. But in verse 8, light describes prosperity and knowledge and truth and joy and gladness in life. It is going to explode like a sunrise. Your health is going to jump forth speedily. He's got you covered in soul, mind, joy, body, and, his, and relationship with him. Your righteousness shall go before thee. You'll be blessed whatever door you go through because you're an upright man and I will honor you. And I'll take care of your backside. You know, men today say, I got your back. The Lord says, I got your back. How does he say that? Here I am. Who, I want to hear the Lord say that. That when I need him... And when I cry unto him, he says, here I am. These are tremendous blessings, physical, natural, emotional, and spiritual in one verse. The Lord will be my rear word. Then we can call and the Lord will hear us. You know, the next chapter is going to say the Lord doesn't hear. This chapter says the Lord doesn't hear in verses two through five. Here I am. If you'll take away from thee the yoke, the heavy yoke, the unnecessary yoke, the too hard yoke. God told masters in the Bible to deal with their servants or slaves delicately. It says that, delicately. Are you dealing delicately with everyone in your life? Let's do so, so that we may realize these blessings. The putting forth of the finger. Can be pointing people out and condemning them, and it can be what Americans know quite well that has been known in the world since 423 BC, and that's a particular use of the middle finger. But if we'll stop doing that, and we'll stop speaking vanity, worthless, foolish, filthy thoughts, and if we'll draw out our souls, that means to work up compassion for people. It says, draw out your souls. It doesn't say, write a check. It says, draw out your soul. You know, your soul wants to stay inside because it's in love with you. We all love ourselves. And so Jesus would teach, we need to learn to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But we need to draw out our souls. We need to have bowels of compassion. Do you know all the verses of the New Testament that can be brought forth on this point? That we we need to choose to have bowels and be affected by other people. Your life isn't your own. What if Jesus Christ had said his life was his own? You'd be on your way to hell. He came to serve people. We want to serve people. This is what Isaiah 58 is about. It's not me taking it and twisting it to fit 1 Corinthians 13. It just happens to be one of the greatest subjects in the Bible, and that's our relationships with others, that we are charitable and merciful. And so there's an if in verse 10, as there has been a condition set already, but if we will take care of the hungry and the afflicted. Then in verse 10 in the middle, we have another then. Thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. Do you ever feel confused and in a dilemma, and not knowing what to do when you've lost your joy, and your life feels dark, like clouds have come between the sun and you? Well, if you'll do things the right way, God will rip those clouds out of your sky, just like he's able to rip the clouds out of the sky yesterday in this city so that we had one beautiful, bright, lit day. The Lord shall guide thee continually. How often will he guide thee? In verse 11, continually. When will he satisfy thy soul? When there's nothing around to satisfy you. Every married couple needs to remember this. If you do not make your love of God... And your love of Jesus Christ and your love of his word, the supreme love of your life, your spouse will always disappoint you. Then you'll be in drought. But if you're honoring God and seeking him, he will satisfy your soul in drought. You can be happy in an unhappy marriage. Every marriage is unhappy to some degree because it's two sinners living with each other. But if each of those sinners trying to live with the other is doing what this chapter describes, aggressively, boldly, generously, faithfully, God will satisfy their soul in drought. He'll make fat thy bones. You'll be living that good life that we had reminded to us this morning from Psalm 4 and taken from Isaiah 55, about your soul delighting itself in fatness. You'll have that. By obedience, the Lord will give it. Because the Lord can speak the word, make that man joyful. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, you can be filled with all joy, filled with all peace, and abounding in hope. That's Romans 15, 13. Brethren, this is the word of the Lord. And while a minister is supposed to lift up his voice and cry aloud and not spare and Blast away against your sins. At the same time, I am laying out before you the most wonderful blessings jam-packed together in one place in the Bible. These blessings just run the whole gamut of blessings. Thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. You'll never run out. You'll never dry up. You'll never feel dry when you get up in the morning. And you won't be saying to yourself, why am I alive? What's the purpose of it all? You'll be full of water. Do you remember? Do you remember? How the Lord said, a vineyard of red wine, and I will water it every moment, and I will protect it. Here it is. I want that. I want to be that red wine vineyard. Well, Isaiah 58 told you how. Who can you be nice to today? Who can you be nice to today that you haven't been very nice to? Be nice to them. I don't have anybody in prison for you to visit. But I do have a list. But you're never going to see it unless you beg for it. And those that have already begged for it have seen it. And some of those that have begged for it, please be patient and I'll get you that list. I appreciate you asking. You're already trying to fulfill Isaiah 58 and I hadn't even preached it yet. Verse 12, And they that shall be of thee, your descendants... I have a young couple sitting right in front of me working on their descendants. Well, they've already done the work and they already have the descendants out of sight. But it says here, they that shall be of thee, your descendants, shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. The land of Judah was desolate. The land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem had been laid waste by Nebuchadnezzar. And if a man in Babylon committed himself to living this way and treating others fairly. Remember, there's only two commandments for God's religion, the love of God and the love of others. If a man were to choose to do that, to have pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father, then God would bless his family tree. And I thank God for my father. And I'm looking at him right now, though he is not here. I'm looking at him right now. I thank God for him being my father. I know how he treated other people. I know his graciousness. I know he gave his life, his whole life, to serve others. And I thank God for that. And I want to to fulfill it for him. He wrote me one of the nicest birthday greetings last Lord's Day that I've ever received. And he said some of the kindest things about his wild son, and his son's ministry. But I want to turn that back on him this morning, and tell him that it's because of his faithful life, and his relationships with other people, his graciousness, his generosity, and his willingness not to get anything out of this life, but instead to give it to others. I thank God for my father. And so, my brethren, if you set yourself To live with this priority. Now abide in faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. And that's what this passage is about. Is charity toward those working under you. Toward those around you. Toward those in your own family that are your own flesh. Charity in clothing. Charity in food. Charity in relieving them from affliction. If you'll do that, you can build a family tree. Starting with you that will fulfill this 12th verse. Lord, what can we do as a church if half the men were to humble themselves before this chapter and commit themselves to it? I know that in every church, many are called, but few are chosen. But what if a man was to live this way? What will the future of our church be like? It will be great. Not because of a great pastor, but because of great men that practice pure religion and the charity that's described here. If you want the details of each of the clauses and phrases, there's pages of them. But not today. Not here. Let's go to the last two verses. The last two verses are an example of godly worship for great blessings. It is is as if Isaiah is recapitulating everything he has said in verses 1 through 12. As if he said, let me boil this down and make it simple in two verses. Do you really want to be blessed? The Lord of hosts will bless you. He promises to bless you if you'll do it his way. Now, once you are practicing the charitable religion of God, that's described in verses 1 through 12, and not just focusing on the outward ordinances, then you can add an outward ordinance, and God receives it. And the combination is better than either separate. Ordinances without godly living are worthless and offensive to God, and he calls those that practice them Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know very many in this church that want to be called a Sodomite. But God calls anyone that comes to church and attends and reads their Bible and prays a Sodomite. That's Isaiah 1, verses 9 through 15. Yeah, it's Isaiah 1. You were supposed to read it last evening. And so just having the outward ordinances is that offensive to God. But if we just have godly living, then that's only reaching halfway by only doing one of the commandments. Because the two commandments of God's religion is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And second, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, if we're focusing on this one, and we don't get this one engaged of loving God, then we're depriving him as well. And so the last two verses, assuming your charitable lifestyle in your relationships, uses the Sabbath as the example of loving God. And notice here's how it goes. The last two verses of Isaiah 58. If, oh, I love an if. If, then verse 14 is going to start with a then. We love to read the Bible and find if, then, conditional statements. If you do this, then I will do that. And it's that simple. Here we go. If. Thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The mouth of the Lord makes this promise. Now the Sabbath was the identifying mark of difference between the Jews and the Canaanites. The Jews kept the seventh day of the week. And so it is picked as a synecdoche for all the worship of God. They're not, they don't have a temple right now. So it doesn't say, bring a burnt offering. It says, keep my Sabbaths. Because they're in Babylon from all that we can tell by the context. But using the Sabbath as an example, it is talking about the outward ceremonial assemblies of God's worship. Of taking time off for the Lord, the seventh day. It's talking about outward worship. And so the Lord, having said, this is the kind of fast I want. And so in verses 6 and 7, he told you how to deal with other people. He summarized it. Then he gave blessings, and then he said, let's recapitulate this way. If you'll keep the Sabbath in a way that I really like you keeping the Sabbath, on top of you having relationships that please me, and not oppressing others, and getting rid of the fist of wickedness, and getting rid of the finger, then I will bless you as it's stated here. So in verse 13, turn, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, and it's explained in the next phrase, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day. If you'll stop doing things on my day that are for yourself, if you'll make my day, my day. And this is, we don't believe in a New Testament Sabbath. So you've got to understand this about everything we do as a church. Right now, if you're in your home, engaged, prepared, maybe dressed up like we are, focused, you've prepared the night before, you've prayed, because you're engaging and you're making it a delight for your soul to seek the Lord the way that he wants to be worshipped. Because we don't practice the Sabbath. So you've got to take that and transfer it to what New Testament Christians do. And we do love our assemblies. But we don't come to our assemblies out of tradition. We don't come to our assemblies out of habit. We come to our assemblies because we want to meet God and we want to meet our brethren that he has formed together into a holy habitation for himself. And call the Sabbath a delight. We should call church services a delight. The holy of the Lord, honorable. Church services should be honorable. We love them. They should be the high point of your week and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. We want his words to be the issue. We want his pleasure to be the issue of when we come together. We want his ways to define and to limit how we behave in assemblies. So with charity and mercy shown toward those in our lives, specifically identified in verses 6 and 7, God will give us verses 8 through 12. Then here, recapitulating, if you'll make Sabbath worship the pleasure of your life, of pleasing me and delighting in me and using my words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. I want to make a point here. For the first 40 to 50 years of my life, Psalm 37.4 was my favorite verse. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. And I have preached messages on what it means to delight in the Lord. But I want to limit it right now to this definition. Do you know what this definition is? Taking God's ordinances and making them special and delighting in them and fulfilling them and keeping the rules of them to make God happy. Because it's his pleasure we seek, not our own. And so if we delight in his holy day, if we delight in his worship, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. The delighting in the Lord is indeed delighting in him personally, from your soul. Stand in awe and sin not, commune with your own heart upon your bed. Psalm four four. But it is also delighting in his commandments. Jesus said, if a man love me, he will get all giddy about me. If a man love me, he will keep my commandments. And so it is here. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. And when we are delighting in the Lord, by managing our relationships to be a people prepared for the Lord, and delighting in his form of worship, his way, for his pleasure, using his words, then... I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth. Do you want to be as successful as you can be? This is the way to it. I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth. I will do it for you. I will open doors. I will open doors for you. Did God open doors for David? God took David from being the eighth of eight, of eight sons and took him from the sheepfold and put him on the throne of a nation that extended its borders from the Tigris and Euphrates to the Nile, so that all those bordering nations were paying tribute to David and to his sons. I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father. The song we sang before I got in this pulpit was near my God to thee about God's blessing on Jacob. Do you want want a ladder between you and, and the Lord with angels coming in both directions? Do you want to be made great? Do you want to have God bless you and appear to you like he did to Jacob so that Jacob would call that place Bethel? Do you want to every closet that you go into to be Bethel, the house of God of a particular personal sort with you? Here's how you do it. Who do you have a grudge against? Who could use a kind word from you today? Whose affliction could you lift and lighten? Who could you give something to grin about and shout and jump around about? Do it. Do it so that the Lord can do it to you. How true is all this that I've said to you today? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Please stand with me. Holy Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy words. We thank thee that we can know how to please thee. We thank thee for thy ways. We thank thee that thou hast taught us that charity and mercy are things that we are supposed to delight in and put an emphasis upon, and that you will bless us for so doing. Heavenly Father, we ought to do these things without any reward or blessing from thee. But we thank thee for all thy promised blessings, and we rejoice in them because you offered them to us. But, Heavenly Father, grip us by thy Spirit that we will be so full of mercy in our marriages, with our children, with everyone, that we will put into practice this chapter before us. Have mercy upon us, Heavenly Father, and stir us up by the might of your Spirit and by your words that we will do these things. And if you give us the blessings, we know you're capable of it and we know you promise them But we, even without them, we want to live in a way that delights thy soul. But then show this church your greatness and bless every man that chooses to be great in thy sight by extending to children and children's children the restorer of the breach and the repairer of paths that our church may be great going into the future. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.